We are beginning our Advent season in the book of John, and so if you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 1, or you can follow along in your order of service. Uh, We are taking a break from Exodus. We will come back to it in January with the Ten Commandments. Have no fear. Um, But but, uh, historically, the church um, has seen these four Sundays that lead up to Christmas as the season of Advent. Now, we don't make a big deal of the church calendar here, but, but this is one aspect of the calendar that we often are uh, reminded of and that we, we will point to this season of Advent, which is a season of preparation, preparing for the coming of our Lord Jesus, His incarnation. And so oftentimes churches will use uh, passages like uh, some of the prophets, those predictive passages, or, or they'll look to uh, the gospel narratives, the birth narratives, to, to remind us of Jesus' incarnation. Well, well, this year we're going to look at John 1. So these 18 verses we're going to break up over the next four weeks, and this morning we're going to look at just the first three verses of John 1. And so if you would, follow along in your Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Friends, this is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in our family, uh, we have a Christmas tradition. Um, Some might call it a rule. It is absolute and it is unflinching. Everyone has to abide by it in our house. And this Christmas rule is that no one can celebrate Christmas until Thanksgiving is over, right? So that means uh, no tree, no light, no baking, no movies, certainly no songs until the turkey is finished, right? And as soon as we're done eating the turkey... As soon as there's only crumbs left of the stuffing, then we work off all those extra Thanksgiving calories by putting up lights and by putting up the tree and by singing Christmas carols. And inevitably, we watch the requisite Christmas movies, you know, these movies that, that sometimes go over our kids' heads, but Kat and I find ourselves chuckling about, and these movies with these one-liners that we say not just during Christmas, but we say throughout the year, like, you'll shoot your eye out. Or, uh, or, <laughs> or that, <laughs> that there is the gift that keeps on giving, Clark. Or, or perhaps even one of our newer ones, uh, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is to sing loud for all to hear. Those are some of the lines that we like to sing and some of the lines that we like to say and that we laugh at. And, and there are many others, but, but there's one that is probably the most profound of all the lines that we hear during the Advent season. It actually takes the form of a question, and it's found in that wonderful Christmas story, Charlie Brown Christmas. You remember Charlie Brown Christmas? Charlie Brown has been given the task of directing the Christmas pageant, and and so he's, he's leading and directing this endeavor with all the children, and one of them comes to him, Lucy, and says, why don't you go get us a Christmas tree, Charlie Brown? Go get us a nice aluminum Christmas tree, which... Which like, do they really make aluminum trees? I've never seen one. You know, maybe the upside down ones that Target makes now, those are, I don't know. But I've never seen an aluminum tree, but that's what he's supposed to get, an aluminum Christmas tree. And so he goes off to the Christmas tree park or shop, or I don't know what they're called because we have fake trees. So they go off to get the tree, and they, instead of getting the aluminum tree, he brings it back this little, sad, dying, kind of sapling. 
And he brings it in and he sticks it on the auditorium stage. And all the children look at it. He takes off his coat and they start laughing. And they say things like, Lucy, you can't do anything right, can you, Charlie Brown? Or another one of them says, you're hopeless, Charlie Brown, completely hopeless. And Charlie Brown, in his sadness, having been derided over this choice of this sad little tree, he turns to his friend Linus and says, I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Is there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? What a wonderful question. It's actually the question. It's a very important question. You remember Charlie Brown's friend Linus. He turns and goes, well, sure, Charlie Brown, I know what Christmas is all about. And he goes out onto the stage, and the light, the spotlight shines on him, and he quotes Luke 2. That wonderful account of the angels announcing to the shepherds the birth of Jesus. You see, Linus got it right. He knew what Christmas was all about. At the center of Christmas is Christ, is Jesus. He knew how to answer that question, but, but do you know what the answer to that question is? Do you know how to answer it? What about your neighbors? What would they say Christmas is all about? No doubt many still recognize that Christmas is the day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus. But, but even beyond that, what, is, is that all that it is? Just the other day, I was on Facebook, and I was looking at a friend's post. He, he started a string, and someone I didn't know, a, a friend of his, replied that Jesus is simply a myth. Why would we even celebrate this? He's a myth. Now, most people in our culture wouldn't say he's a myth because that would to be completely ignoring the historical evidence that Jesus was, in fact, a man who lived 2,000 years ago. And so we're not ignorant of the historical reality of his existence, and yet... We hear all sorts of other divergent understandings of who Christ is. Jesus was a moral man, a wise sage, a great teacher, a spiritual leader. And all of these things have elements of truth. He was, in fact, a moral man. And he was a wonderful teacher and he was a spiritual leader. But, but all of those things do not encapsulate the fullness of who Christ is. You see, Jesus is so much more than simply a moral man or a wise sage or a great teacher. And that's what the prologue of John tells us. You see, the first 18 verses of John 1 is a prologue to the entirety of the book. And the first 18 verses are telling us the fullness of who Christ is. And these first three verses are speaking directly towards that. These three verses, in these three verses, we're seeing the person of Christ and also the work of Christ. And that's what I want us to look at this morning, those two ideas, the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Now, for those of you who, um, who check your watch during the sermon or maybe look up at that clock up there, um, just let me give you a heads up. The first point is much longer than the second, okay? <laughs> so, 
So if uh, we get near to the end of the first point, you're thinking, man, Penny is going long. Don't worry, I'm not, <laughs> okay? It's going to be a lot shorter, so just stay with me, okay? Um, take, take a breath. It will be okay. Um, but, but I want us to look first at the person of Christ. And the first point about the person of Christ that we see in this passage is that Jesus is eternal. He's eternal. Now, the four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all start their uh, telling of the gospel story, they all start at different points in human history. If we were to look at Matthew, we would see the genealogy of Jesus, and he begins that genealogy with Abraham. Mark begins with a prophecy to Isaiah, and Luke begins a few months before Jesus was born. Each one of them start at a different point in human history. But what's fascinating about the gospel of John is that John actually begins before history, before time existed. Right? Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning. Now, if you're a Christian, that phrase should sound very, very familiar to you. And even if you're not a Christian, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you, our Bible still has enough cultural cachet that you've probably heard that phrase before because that phrase is the very first phrase of the entire Bible. If we turn to Genesis chapter 1, we would see in Genesis 1-1 the words, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John is using that same phraseology in John chapter 1. And the reason he's doing that is because he's making a connection between Jesus and the beginning of time. That begin, before there was even human history, before the heavens and the earth existed, there was Jesus. That's who the Word is. Genesis tells us that that's where God was. Before the heavens and the earth, before they were formed, before anything existed, there was God, and Jesus was with God in the beginning. Now, again, if you're a Christian, you've heard this before, and so it can easily roll off our backs, and we don't really think about, oh, yeah, sure, he was in the beginning. But think about that for a second. There was never a time where Jesus was not. Y'all, that is mind-bending. Like, talk to a kid about that. And watch their faces contort as they try to understand that. And that is exactly how a 39-year-old and an 89-year-old's faces should contort because it is incredible to think that before the heavens and the earth, there was God, the uncreated creator, the one who has always been. John is telling us that Jesus was there with the Father in the time before there was time, that there was God the Father and God the Son. And we know from Genesis 1 that there was God the Holy Spirit because we're told that this Spirit hovered over the waters. And so God, three in one, were there in the very beginning. Jesus is eternal. But the second part of his personhood that I want us to see is that Jesus is also God. Look at the end of verse 1. The Word was God. Now, we need to camp out here a little bit because there are some divergent interpretations of this one verse, this one clause. I would imagine that some of you have had someone knock on your door before. <laughs> you all started laughing. Um, so uh, you know what I'm talking about. Someone's knocked on your door and they want to talk to you about their understanding of the world. Their understanding of the Bible of Jesus, right? A Jehovah's Witness has come to your door and they want to talk to you about their interpretation of the Bible. And, um, and hopefully, 
we think, well, this is a wonderful opportunity for us to share the gospel. And so we invite them in and we have tea or coffee and we talk to them. And if you do that, you know, or maybe you're just doing it at your doorway. If you do that, then you know that at some point they're going to point to this passage. And they're going to say, oh, yeah, well, we believe in Jesus. We believe that he was a God, not the God. And they're going to point to this passage because in this passage they would say that that word for God at the end of verse 1, the word was God, is missing the definite article. And so they would want us to understand this passage to be in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. Yes, Jesus was God, but he was a created God. Maybe he was the first of the created gods, but, but he's not God the Father. He's different than that. You see, there was a time when Jesus was not. Y'all have heard this before, right? You've heard them retort. Well, well, how do we respond to that? Like, what do we say? Because actually, if you know Greek and you were looking at your Greek New Testament, you would see, well, that word for God actually doesn't have the definite article. It doesn't have the definite article. So what are we to do with that? Because they're right in that sense. But actually the conclusion that they come up with based on the, want, the fact that the definite article is missing there is actually apparent. It's, it's not what we abhorrent, excuse me. It's not something that we should actually be embracing. Instead, there is good reason grammatically and contextually and theologically for why we should see Jesus as not a God, but the God. That he is of the same substance with the Father and the Holy Ghost. So what are you going to say to them? Well, well, let's take a little bit of time and let me help you to know what to say to them. So that when they knock on the door next time, or even when your friends are talking about, well, there surely cannot be three persons to this Godhead, you can maybe have a, a conversation with them. Let's think about this. There are actually good reasons to affirm Christ's deity. The first... The first is that if John wanted to communicate that Jesus was simply a God, there was another word he could have used, another Greek word he could have used. See, there's another Greek word they could have used that actually has that element of divinity, but it doesn't associate itself with God the Father. But that's not what John does here. He actually uses the word here at the end of verse 1, the word was God. That word God is the Greek word theos, and it's the same word that he uses to refer to the Father. If he wanted us to disassociate Jesus from the Father, he could have done so by just choosing a different word. That's the first reason. He actually uses the same word as he does with the Father. The second is that Greek grammar doesn't actually require the definite article to be used here. There's actually a number of instances in which two different nouns are governed by the same article when they're separated by the word and. Uh, there's a rule called the Colwell rule, and um, I, I won't go into all the details of that. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, someone said thank you. Um, but, um, but there is a specific port, part, uh, part of the Colwell rule, and then there's a principle that governs it, and this actual verse falls within that principle. And so it doesn't require the definite article. So that's the second thing. The third thing is that there's actually good reason why John wouldn't use the definite article here. You see, to do so would indicate that he's speaking of God the Father. In other words, it would read the word was the God. And it would be saying that Jesus, the word, is the Father. 
It would actually be combining the two persons of the Trinity into one. And that is problematic because uh, that leads us into a heresy called modalism. So modalism was this heresy that said that God actually is just one person and he reveals himself in different modes. So in the Old Testament, we have God the Father. In the New Testament, we have God the Son. And in the age of the church, we have God the Holy Spirit. It's just one person. He's just revealing himself in different ways, different modes. Well, that was determined to be heretical for good reason, because it is. See, the Word is not the Father. And so there's good reason not to have the article, the definite article. The final reason, the final reason why we can affirm Jesus' deity, well, I mean, there, there are actually a whole host more, but, um, but you're welcome. I will spare us all those other ones as well. But finally, contextually, you see, actually, through the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to himself as God. For instance, in John 10 and 17, he says that I and the Father are one. We're different, but we're one. And so there's actually very good reason why we can have great confidence that Jesus is not the first created God, but that he is God from eternity past. There's good reason. And so when they knock on your door, don't send them away. Tell them. <laughs> Pull out your notes. <laughs> Keep them pinned to the door, you know, or, or you don't have to say, just come back tomorrow and my pastor or one of the elders will be here to solve all your problems. You don't have to do that. Talk to them because this is foundational to our faith that Jesus has always been, that he's the eternal God. We can have great confidence. So that's the second point. Jesus is eternal. He's God, but the final point I want us to make about the person of Christ is that he is a distinct person. He's a distinct person. We actually said it in our shorter catechism this morning, in our affirmation of faith. Remember, how many persons are there in the Godhead? And we said, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Same in substance, yet distinct persons. And we actually hear it in John 1, right? We heard the word was God, same substance, so it's speaking of the quality of the nature of God. But before that, we read the word was with God, a distinct person, a distinction made between the Father and the word, the same substance, yet different persons. Now, look, there's not a good analogy, I could try and talk about the clover leaf, right? Y'all have heard that one. Or I could talk about the different ways that water, you know, different parts of water, it's solid and it's liquid and it's vapor and all the. But, but every, every analogy that we try to come up with to explain the Trinity falls short because there's nothing in the entire universe that is the same as the Trinity. One God in three persons. And so we... We can't come up with a good analogy. We simply have to try and make sense of what the biblical record teaches us, that Jesus is God, and yet he is distinct from the Father. That they are one, and yet they are different persons. Okay, why did we spend all this time on this? <laughs> why did we talk you know, about Greek grammar and historical theology and heresies that we want to steer clear of? Why did we talk about all this? Because if you get this wrong, you're not going to get anything right. Think about it like this. So uh, if you're new here, if this is your first Sunday, you may not know, but we're building a building just down the road 
I'm 419. Um, and, uh, and it's really fun, and it's awesome to watch, and it's very exciting, right? Many years of prayer and lots of sacrificial giving, and if you come by this week to the office, I would love to walk you around and point out all the different parts of it. It's, it is very fun to watch. And the week before Thanksgiving, if you uh, follow us on Facebook, you saw the pictures. The week before Thanksgiving, they started building our tower, Right, this amazing 60-foot tower that's going to have a big steeple on the top that's going to be uh, what the foreman said, is, said was, this is going to be very impressive. <laughs> so if the foreman's saying that, we know it's true. So, um, <laughs> so they started working on the tower the week before Christmas, and they're putting down the blocks, and it got to be about chest high, and then they broke for Thanksgiving. Well, Monday morning, I show up to my study. I look out my window because I can watch all the building that's going on through one of my windows. And, and I, I see the masons going over to the tower. And instead of picking up more block to put on top, they're actually tearing it down. Okay, so um, I very uh, calmly... <laughs> Uh, I don't run, but I have a brisk walk outside, and I go up to the foreman, and I basically said, what are you guys doing? No, no, I said, what, what's going on? <laughs> uh, why are they tearing it down, sir? You know, that's what I asked him. And he said, well, uh, what they realized very quickly was that it was off. It wasn't right. Now, he didn't tell me how off it was. It could have been a foot. It could have been 10 feet. I know it wasn't 10 feet, but it could have been a couple of inches, but it was off. And they knew that if they kept going, they could never make it right. That they couldn't just slide it over a little bit halfway up. Or at the top, they could just kind of make it kind of go a little crooked. Like everyone would know it was off. And so they had to start all over and start it right. And that is the doctrine of Christ. You see, if we get Christ wrong... It doesn't, matter. it doesn't matter if we try and get anything else right. We, we can't. You see, you can embrace Jesus' teaching. You can say he was a wonderful teacher. You can say, I love his ethic. I love that he says, love your neighbor as yourself. I love that he says men should, should uh, not look lustfully at a woman. I love that he says that, that we should give to the poor. I love that he says all these sorts of things. But if you get this wrong, all that is for naught. That's why we have to spend time in understanding who it is that we are worshiping. That's why it's so important for us to think about the divine word who is in the very beginning with God, who was God, who took on flesh. He is the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. Two natures hypostatically united together. You have to get it right. Now look, saying you have to get it right doesn't mean you're going to fully get it. Right? I mean, we're not going to fully comprehend it. Our finite minds can't fully grasp three in one and two natures in one person, right? As I said before, try telling it to a kid. It, it is just mind-bending. We realize very quickly that our words are simply approximations for what is reality. That there is a mystery taking place. But friends, the, the mystery and our limitations in being able to fully comprehend it do not negate the truthfulness of it. 
that simply because we can't wrap our minds around it doesn't negate the truth that Jesus is eternal, that he is God, that he is the second person of the Trinity. You see, who he is, not how fully we grasp it, who he is is why we celebrate him, why we worship him, because of who he is. Okay, that's the person of Christ. But now we have the work of Christ. Remember, don't worry, it's a little bit shorter. The work of Christ. We see his work showing up in creation. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, John already alluded to the first week of creation with the phrase, in the beginning. So when we hear all things were made through him, it should cause us to look back to that first week as well. And in Genesis 1, we hear God created the heavens and the earth and all that they contain, and he did so by his word. He spoke, and it came into existence. And so he said, light, and there was light. He said, water, and there was water. He said, fish, and they were swimming through the water. He just spoke by the word of his power. That's how the Westminster Shorter Catechism speaks of it. He spoke by the word of his power, and it came into existence. And what John is telling us is that Christ was part of that. He was actually creating in the beginning. See, as one theologian put it, the word Jesus is God's executor in creation. He is the agent who accomplishes God's will. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Or as Colossians 1 puts it, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is incredible. You see, Jesus was in the beginning creating, but then he didn't step away as though he is as though he is the deistic understanding of God, but he actually is relationally invested in his creation because he is holding it together. And so what that means is that if Jesus would remove his grip from creation, then it would all fall apart, but that's not what he does. He holds it together. He's holding it all together. Jesus' work, it didn't stop with creation. He maintains it. But he also recreates. See, that's the other part of his work. See, we know that when God created the heavens and the earth, he declared it to be good. And when he created, finished his creation week on the sixth day, he said it was very good. But we know that very good has become very bad. Right? That creation has an invader. That there is a parasite that is within creation itself, that is within our own hearts. This invader is sin itself. And because of our sin, the creation is now groaning. That's what Romans 8 tells us. It is groaning and man is lost. But thanks be to God. Christ's work doesn't stop with creation. It doesn't stop with just maintaining it. It actually continues with recreation. You see, Jesus didn't leave his creation or his people to the curse. Instead, he entered that creation and he saved his people from their sins. That's what John tells us later in our passage. Later in chapter 1, John the Baptist is out beyond the Jordan baptizing. And Jesus comes to him and John looks upon Christ and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God 
who comes to take away the sin of the world. You see, Jesus' work didn't end with creation. It continues with recreation, with making us new creations. That's what Paul tells us. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Jesus himself says in Revelation, Behold, I am making all things new. And in Romans 8, Paul tells us that the creation is groaning for the redemption of men. It is longing for that day when man will be revealed to have been redeemed by Christ. And all things will be made new. That is the work of Christ. It doesn't end with creation. It continues with recreation. I mean, think about how incredible that is, that the creator of the universe... He entered his creation, the divine word who was in perfect glory with the Father, left that place of glory and took on flesh. The king of heaven and earth, he stooped low and became a servant so that our sins would be forgiven. Y'all, that is incredible. That Jesus is the God who works to save his people. That's why we celebrate. And that's why there is nothing that he can't ask of you. Because Jesus is the God who enters into his creation and saves his people, there is nothing that he can't ask of his people. And so when he says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven, we let our light shine because the king of the universe has redeemed us. And when he says, love your enemies and pray for them. We fall on our knees and we pray because the creator has recreated us. And when he says, take up your cross and deny yourself and follow me, we follow joyfully after the savior who has redeemed us. You see, friends, we do this because we know the answer to Charlie Brown's question. What is Christmas all about? It's about Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the creator of the heavens and the earth, entering his creation, becoming like man, and bringing salvation. It's about the person of Christ and the work of Christ for the good of his people. Amen. Father, we do thank you that you have sent your Lord, our Lord, your son Jesus, to take on flesh, to dwell amongst us, to live and to die and to rise again to take that which has fallen and to bring forgiveness, to take that which is that should be brought under judgment and to feel grace, to know goodness, to experience your mercy. God, we pray that you would help us today and all our days, help us this season to be mindful of who Christ is and what he has done. For the glory of your name, And for the good of your people, we pray in Christ's name. And God's people said, Amen.